0: You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 4 this morning. Psalm 4, page 448 uh, is where you'll find that on the black hardcover Bibles that Elise mentioned just a moment ago. Uh, Dane Ortlund, in his book Gentle and Lowly, which a number of us are going to be reading together in our Bible study groups in the weeks to come, Dane Ortlund writes this, the Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. In other words, one of the hardest things to do, one of the things that takes the longest for us to do in the Christian life is to trust that God really is who he says he is. God insists, for example, that he is both great and good. He insists that he's great, that he reigns over and is completely in control of all things. And simultaneously, he insists that he is good, that he deals bountifully and benevolently with all that he has made. And God insists that he is both of those things all the time. But as most of us know, all of us know, there are days and years and sometimes decades where those things do not seem compatible. If God is good, why do so many horrific things still happen? Why is this world, why is my life so broken? God must not be great. Or if he is great, then surely he must not be good. If you wrestle with that, what I hope you hear this morning and in this series in the weeks to come is that you're not alone. You're not alone and that you're not the first. For as long as people have been invited to know and to have a relationship with God, they've had to fight, to trust, to believe who he is, who he says he is. That that's the case for people who are exploring Christianity that aren't Christians and they're thinking about, well, man, can I. Can I actually believe this stuff? Maybe that's where some of you are today. This is also the case for people who have been Christians a long time. And so in the weeks ahead, we're going to walk through this new series called Taste and See, Learning to Trust the Goodness of God. We've already gotten to sing it together this morning, which I love that, that song. But in Psalm 34, King David proclaims, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God is insisting through the psalmist there that he is good, and he's inviting the people of God to experience his goodness. But we are very much in the middle of a lifelong journey of learning to trust that that's actually true. So we're in Psalm 4 today. Before we dive into that, though, let's, let's define goodness. We're going to be talking a lot about the goodness of God. Let's define that. What does it mean that God is good? What is his goodness? A scholar named Stephen Sharnick defines it this way. It's kind of the working definition that we'll use for this series. He says, the goodness of God is his inclination to deal well and bountifully with his creatures. It includes the whole catalog of mercy, grace, long-suffering, abundance of truth, summed up in this one word. So goodness is a a really broad umbrella term. If it's helpful for you this morning, think about it like whiskey. I'm sure you came this morning thinking that's what Pastor's going to give a metaphor on today. Whiskey. Whiskey. Yeah. Think about it like whiskey. Uh, whiskey is an umbrella term some of you know this maybe you know it too well some of you know this and then depending on the origin the grain the aging and the blending process there are different types there's bourbon there's rye there's scotch on and on well god's goodness is the umbrella term and his goodness then takes on different forms based on how or to whom it's being applied so goodness toward those who are guilty we might call grace Goodness toward those who suffer, we might call compassion. Goodness to those deserving judgment, we might call patience or mercy. And we'll have a chance to unpack more of that as we walk through this series. But for today, we're going to begin with the question of goodness. The question of goodness. At points in our lives, we run face first into questions about the goodness of God. Is he really good like he says he is? Or the way that David articulates it in Psalm chapter 4. Who will show us some good? Who will show us some good? Listen for that question. And I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is the fourth psalm. And I'll begin there at the intro and then verse 1. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, even as we read earlier in John chapter six, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So help us now to hear and to trust what you will say to us today. And we pray this through Jesus Christ. Amen. The more uh, time I've spent in the book of Psalms over the course of my life, the more encouraged I am about how it opens. So Psalm chapter one, which we actually had a chance to look at last week, points to the goodness of God. That God is the one who blesses and who prospers his people. God makes his people stand in the judgment. He's the source of their life. He's the source of their fruitfulness. Psalm 2, then, points to the greatness of God. The psalmist talks about how the kings of the earth are nothing compared to the king of all the universe and that that king is always on his throne. So there's this incredible start, chapters 1 and 2, highlighting God's goodness and greatness. But then immediately after that, there's this crash. There's this collision between God's character and the psalmist's circumstances. And a potential conflict emerges between God's goodness and God's greatness. In Psalm 3, David is writing about the time that he was removed from his throne. His throne was usurped by his son Absalom. Absalom was coming into the city and he had to flee. And then in Psalm 4, which is perhaps referring to the same instance, David is crying out to God from this place of distress, from this place of troubling circumstances. see, the Psalms are not flowery cliches or empty platitudes. They are weighty. They are substance. And for centuries, they've helped God's people to square up God's goodness and greatness with the suffering, with the miseries of real life. And here in Psalm 4, David gives us an example of how we, as the people of God, can wrestle through this this question of goodness. So we're going to walk through it this morning by considering the four people or groups that David addresses in this psalm. He addresses God, and then his enemies, and then his friends, and then at the end he addresses God again. So first, first, David addresses God. Verse 1 is him pleading with God. He's saying, answer me when I call. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. So from the very start of this psalm, we're seeing some foundational assumptions that are there deep within David's heart. He believes God is there and that God hears and that God can answer. He, he even believes something about God's character, that he's gracious. And David has experienced that in his life in times gone by sandwiched in between his pleading there in verse 1 is a reminder. He's saying, God, you have given me relief when I was in distress. You have shown up before when I've really needed you. Be gracious to me again, even as you've you've been gracious before. When, When you and I hear the word theology, most of us probably think about books and studies and seminaries. Most of us probably think about professors and pastors. But theology is actually just what we believe about God. The word theology just means a word about God. So everyone does theology. Everyone has a theology, and everyone draws upon the theology they have, especially in times of distress. It's in those moments what we believe about God comes comes out whether we want it to or not. I really appreciate how Carolyn Custis James put it, writing about times when life doesn't make sense. She writes, the moment the word why crosses our lips we are doing theology. No matter what went wrong or how others may have contributed to our suffering, ultimately our struggles lead to God's doorstep. And what Psalm 4 is inviting you to do, what David is modeling for us here, is to bring our wrestling, to bring our struggling to God, right to his doorstep. Not not to go off on our own and try to solve these things, apart from him, not to process our lives and our circumstances over here and then try to bring that back into some kind of grid where God is real and present, but to process through these things with him. The the Psalms give God's people permission to ask the hard questions. And not only that, permission to ask the hard questions to God himself. The Psalms is 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 a book of songs and prayers. And if you've been a Christian for a while, i have been around the church for a while, you, you perhaps know prayers have many forms. There's praise, there's thanksgiving, there's confession as we do together every week, there's requests. But sometimes, and this is perhaps the kind of prayer that's most absent from our lives, sometimes prayer is simply bearing your soul to God and just inviting him to hear and to answer. In this series, we're going to talk about learning to trust the goodness of God. That process starts by going to God, by going to him, by seeking to understand who he is, what he has said, what he has revealed about himself. It's doing theology. It's doing theology. And what I hope you hear this morning is this. Before theology is ever about having the right answers to our questions, it's about taking our questions to the one who has answers. Before it ever is about us having the right answers to our questions, it's about us taking our questions to the one who hears, who answers. When you find yourself asking why, when you find yourself face-to-face with the hard questions, when, when God's greatness and God's goodness collide and seem to contradict one another in your life, start by going to God. Begin with the assumption, as David does, that he is there, that he hears, and cry out to him to answer. So David begins by addressing God, and then second, David addresses his enemies, verses 2 and 3. There's a group of men who are exploiting this miserable time to shame David, to utter empty words, to lie to him. And if Psalm 4 is indeed referring to that time that Absalom usurped David's throne, then an example of this would be a man named Shimei. As David was fleeing Jerusalem, this man named Shimei threw stones at David. Not the phrase, the metaphorical expression, threw stones. Literally rocks. He picked up, chucked them at David and his men as they were fleeing Jerusalem. And as he did that, Shimei screamed curses at David. We read about this in 2 Samuel 16. David, you're a worthless man. This is your fault, David. This is your own evil returning on your head. God has forsaken you and you're no longer his king. Painful and confusing times in our lives are compounded by people like this. Are they not? People who shame and lie. With Shimei, it's pretty obvious that he's an enemy. It's obvious that he's trying to, to hurt David, to wound him. It's not always that obvious, though. I was talking with somebody recently whose loved one is really sick. And a friend of theirs, an acquaintance of theirs, offered to come and to pray for healing which is exactly what we should do in that moment. Many of us are praying for people in our lives that we love for God to intervene in a miraculous way. But this friend, this acquaintance, was part of a group that believes that Jesus will always heal people. Will always heal people when we ask. And therefore, that group believes that if Jesus doesn't do that, if someone is not healed, the only explanation is that we either have the wrong kind of faith or not enough of it. I want to ask you this morning, Where does that leave hurting and weary people? Where does that leave them? It heaps shame and condemnation on them, on someone who is already so beaten down and burdened. It's saying to a person, hey, you can get better if you really want to. Why won't you? Why won't you get better? If you're not healed, it's your fault. It's your fault. That's a lie. That's a lie. David here addresses his enemies. He combats lies like that With the truth. And he says, no, no, no. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. His attention, his affection is still on his people. And he has not forsaken me, Shimei, as you are claiming. He hears when I call. He's there and he hears. In our questions about the goodness of God, we have to address our enemies too. Sometimes we directly speak to people like David is doing here. Other times, though, there, there aren't people to direct our words to. But what I want you to hear this morning is that there's always an enemy. There's always an enemy. As the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. We wrestle against Satan. And one of Satan's favorite tactics, in fact, his oldest tactic is what? Lying. Lying. He is a liar And the father of lies. John chapter 8. How did Satan tempt Eve and Adam in the garden? He lied. He lied. And what did he lie about? He lied about the goodness of God, he lied about the nature and character of God. He said, God doesn't want good things for you, He's being withholding. And if you eat this fruit, you won't die. You'll actually become like God. You'll finally be free of His restrictive and withholding ways. Sinclair Ferguson commenting on that in Genesis 3 says this way, The lie was an assault on both God's generosity and his integrity. Neither his character nor his words were to be trusted, according to Satan. This, in fact, is the lie which sinners have believed ever since. The lie of the not-to-be-trusted-because-he-does-not-love-me false father. In painful and confusing circumstances, we will have to fight to believe the truth instead of lies. We will have to fight to trust that God really is who he says he is and not what Satan and not what other people, whether intentionally or unintentionally being the mouthpiece of Satan in certain moments, what they would be lying about to us. And as I was in this text this week, as I was praying and preparing for this morning, I just had this real deep sense that there are people that needed to hear me say something to you. This morning, some of you believe this, you wrestle, you see that God is good and you're trying to cling to that in your life. And you maybe even see how your life and your circumstances are being used by God for good things for other people. Other people are learning. It's growing other people's faith the way that that you're walking through the stuff that's playing out in your life. Here's what, if that's you, I want you to hear this this morning. You are not collateral damage in God's good plan for someone else. Would you just receive that this morning? You are not collateral damage in God's good plan for someone else. Like, yeah, God's got good things for other people, but me, I'm just a cog in the machine. The goodness machine that has to crank out goodness for those people, but I, someone's got someone's to fall on the sword so that other people can... That's, that is not God. That is not God. You are not collateral damage. You are not a cog in God's machine. He hears, he sees, he cares about you too. So David addresses God. He addresses his enemies. And then third, he addresses his friends. In verses four and five here, he, he pivots to address companions, faithful friends. Uh, if, it's, if it is that instance of him fleeing from Absalom, it's probably the, the people fleeing with him, running out of the city in danger. And those who like him are wrestling with questions about God's character, about his goodness. And David here offers some really wise counsel stuff that we should heed and do ourselves. For one thing, he says, be angry, but don't sin. And I want you to hear it right from Scripture this morning. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry, especially when you recognize the lies and how Satan or other people are trying to draw you away from God. The danger is that we're going to indulge a sinful kind of anger, that we're going to misdirect it at the wrong thing or the wrong people. Carolyn Custis James, again, she puts it this way. She says, "'Like the psalmist, we are frustrated by our lack of control over our lives. We're reluctant to trust a God who does not comply with our desires. In every case, for the psalmist and for us, anger is a symptom not of how wrong God has gotten things, but of our need to know him better.'" Anger is a symptom not of how wrong God has gotten things, but of our need to know him better.'" And see, when we experience sin and all of its ripple effects, all the brokenness of this world, what does God think about that? He is angry right alongside us. He hates the sin that fractured his good creation that way. And it's really confusing and it's mysterious. And I won't pretend to have answers that I don't have. Why he doesn't just correct that. Why he doesn't just in every circumstance, doesn't heal, doesn't rescue, doesn't deliver from what we're asking him to deliver us from. But that doesn't mean he isn't angry. When Jesus, this is one of the most comforting passages in all of Scripture to me in moments like this in my life, and maybe it will be in yours too. When Lazarus died, John chapter 11, Jesus wept. But you know what else Jesus did in that moment? He got angry. He got angry at death angrier than than you or I could ever be, he looked at that death of a friend that he loved and he saw Mary and Martha mourning the death of their brother and he said, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not how it's supposed to be. And his anger in that moment had no sin in it. Just like the psalmist writes here, just like David writes here, he got angry and didn't sin. As we learn to trust the goodness of God, part of what we are learning to trust is Jesus' sinless anger that he actually is angrier than you and I ever could be for the things that are playing out that are wrong, the sin and its effects in this world. David also then tells his friends to ponder and be silent. Not only to get angry and not sin, but ponder and be silent, to reflect, to be still. That's hard to do. Especially for some of us whose personality type is to kind of plow through the sorrow, plow through the distress by staying busy. Not trying not to focus on it too much and thinking about, other things. But it is critical for us learning to know and trust the God who is there, to pause and reflect, to ponder. It takes work to spot the lies and to combat them with truth. It takes work to remember, as David was doing there in verse 1, how God has shown himself trustworthy in times gone by. You can think of it like this. Sometimes we have to look for the goodness of God until we find it. We have to look for the goodness of God until we can see it because it's hard to see sometimes. And then the third thing David tells his friends, verse 5, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. In other words, keep going. Keep, Keep pursuing worship and trust. Keep going to God, not withdrawing from him. Keep bringing your life, keep bringing your circumstances before him. So all of this is really good counsel for us to follow. But the other thing to see here is how much you and I need community around us as we wrestle with questions like this about the goodness of God. We need people to both speak into our lives, as David is doing to his friends here, and we need people to be a sounding board for our speaking. We need to process through our questions and doubts. David here is the one giving counsel to his friends, but you start to see as the psalm unfolds, in doing that, he's also encouraging himself. He is preaching the the truth of God's nature and character to himself as he says those things to others. We need faithful friends around us who can help us spot the lies, who can help us combat the lies with truth, who who can embody God's sinless anger without enabling us to indulge our sinful version. We need friends who can help us keep going who can help us keep bringing our lives before the face of God. And community relationships like this, they are one of God's greatest gifts to us. They're one of the most tangible and powerful expressions of God's goodness. In the worst of circumstances, and I know many of you would attest to this as I attest to this, in the worst of circumstances, it is far easier to see the goodness of God when there is someone right with you, helping you see it. When someone is not ashamed of you or scared of you or scared of what you're going through, but they're right there with you and you say, here it is. You might not be able to see it. I can see it. I can see it. Church, let's be those kind of people for each other. I don't know about you. I want a friend like David saying things like this to me when I'm in places like that. Let's be friends like that to each other. Let's help each other learn to trust God's goodness. And then fourth and finally in the psalm, David again directs his words back to God, comes full circle. And in verse six there, he articulates the question that in some shape or form we all run into at some point in our life, who will show us some good? Who will show us some good? Now here's the incredible thing. If we are able to even voice that question, we're on the right road. We're on the right road. And acknowledging our longing that we actually want to deeply experience something good and in taking that longing to God, asking this question is actually the beginning of learning to trust him. It's actually the beginning of how we learn to trust that he is the God who gives good things. One more quote from Carolyn Custis James because I think her stuff is so on point here. She says, faith in the final analysis is trusting someone you know even when you don't always understand what he is doing. Faith is trusting someone you know, even when you don't always understand what he is doing. And we heard it earlier in our service. Nate read it for us in our time of confession. In John chapter 6, Jesus has some really hard things to say. And in response to those hard things, a bunch of the people that were up to that point following him turn away and leave, and they don't follow him anymore. And in that moment, Jesus turns to his, to his 12, his closest followers, his friends, And he says, do you also want to go away? What does Peter say in response? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. That's a variation. Peter's question is a variation of the Psalm 4 question. Who will show us some good? Where else are we going to go? See, it's not that Jesus, after John 6, was going to stop saying hard and offensive things. Like, oh man, I'm sorry I offended so many people when they left. No, it's that if he is the one with eternal life, the hard and offensive things must be part of us finding eternal life, entering into eternal life. In Psalm 4, it's not that God is going to stop taking David, or us for that matter, through tragic, painful, perplexing, wounding things. It's that if God is good, if none is good but God alone, if he's the only source of real goodness, then all of those things must somehow still be compatible with his goodness. Now how? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. And we might never know some of the things that you have been through in your lives. But in those moments, like Peter in his moment in John 6, we say, who else is going to show us some good? Where else would good even come from? Who else is even able to show us some good None but God alone. So I'm looking to him. And by arriving at this question, David here finds increased confidence. He's even wrestling it out in this psalm, taking one more step to learn to trust God's goodness. And he says there, after he poses that question, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In other words, good circumstances can't touch the kind of joy that comes from you, God. Let them have all the grain, let them have all the wine, I want you. I want you instead. And you make me, God, dwell in safety. In fact, there is no safety apart from you. Real safety, regardless of what's playing out in your life, is being known and loved by God. So David says, the last verse of this psalm, I'm going to put my head on the pillow. Unresolved and incomplete as things may be. He's still, he's still away from Jerusalem. Absalom still usurped his throne. He's not, it's not all fixed yet. But he says, I'm going to put my head on the pillow and I'm going to experience your peace in the midst of this. I said earlier that the the Psalms open in this amazing way. Psalm 1, it's about God's goodness. Psalm 2, God's greatness. Psalm 3 and 4, a collision, potential conflict between those things. How do God's goodness and greatness actually fit together? What I would invite you to see this morning is that the opening of this book, the opening of Psalms, is anticipating the ultimate collision at the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you really want to see, if you really want to start to learn to trust, if you want to see the greatness of God slam into the goodness of God, if you want to see, as Psalm 85 puts it, the righteousness of God and the peace of God kiss each other, if you want to see, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, that God is just and simultaneously the justifier, That's where to look. That's where to look. The cross is a picture through and through of God's greatness. That he will deal with sin. He will eradicate sin. He will put down rebellion against him and reign forever. But the cross is also a picture of God's goodness. That he desires because he loves all that he made. He loves his people. He desires none should perish. He does not deal with us as our sins deserve. And the only possible way to be both of those things is if Jesus takes the sin of the world upon himself. You see, at the cross, we see that God is reconciling sinners even as he eradicates sin. He is reconciling the people who created this mess and all of ripple effects of it. Even as he brings them into his kingdom, he is dealing with their sin. We learn to trust the goodness of God by looking at the cross. And so I would call you men and women this morning, develop your theology. Learn to trust that God really is who he says he is with the cross always before your eyes, always right in front of you. The God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? We can say this morning in a way that the psalmist only could anticipate. We can say this morning, who will show us some good? In Jesus, God has. And in Jesus, God will. Because the cross is God's ultimate declaration that he is great and good. Because that is who God insists he is. Let your other assumptions about him fall away. Replace your assumptions with that. May God, even today, give you eyes to see his goodness. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, by the power of your spirit, because we can't do it by our own power, by the power of your spirit, give us strength to live out this message that we've heard today. Give us eyes to see and to trust your greatness and your goodness. Give us the inclination to run to you, not away from you. And help us even now as we come to your table to see your goodness held out before us. We are literally invited to taste and see at this table. And we come weary and weak and desperate and distressed sinners that we are to this table this morning, asking for you to show us some good because in Jesus you have. Pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.